All right, so last week when we uh, began this series, we talked about how John was writing the things that he had heard, things that he had seen, and things that he had touched. John knew what I hope we all know, and that is that good news deserves to be shared. And so this morning, we're going to begin with something that John has heard. And so we pick up in verse number five, and it says, this is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And this is not the first time that John has heard or used the word light to describe God. And in fact, there are at least eight other occasions where, where John uses this word to describe our God. And so I want to take a moment here at the very beginning just to read through eight of those different references. And I know you're not going to be able to keep up with me and find them in in the scriptures as I'm reading that. I get that. I'll go rather fast. But but I'm also going to, in knowing that, I'm going to include all of these references in the description below the video that, that, um, well, it'll contain all the references from the message today. So, so hopefully that you'll be able to, to have that, to go back to that, to mark it up in your Bibles, and to do further study on your own. But let me kind of walk you through these other references. It begins in John chapter 1, verse number 4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then later in verse number 9, he says, He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Then John chapter 3, beginning in verse number 19, he says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Then in John chapter 8, verse number 12, it says again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And in John chapter 9, verse number 5, it says, As long as I am in the world... I am the light of the world. John chapter 12, verse number 35 and 36 says, So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you might become sons of light. And in John chapter 12, Verse number 46, he says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And and then also John uses the word light to describe God in in, in the writing of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 21, it says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth 
will bring their glory into it. So I take the time to read through all of that because I want us to clearly see from the very beginning that as light, God both exposes man's sin and condemns it. So if anyone walks in darkness, then they are hiding from the truth which the light reveals. So it follows that, that someone cannot claim to have fellowship with God while they're living in darkness. Because uh, John goes on to, to warn us in verse number 6. He says, if we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. And so since God is light, then those who claim to know God must be living in the light because darkness and light are incompatible. So people cannot live both in the darkness of sin and in the light of fellowship with God in whom there is no darkness at all. So a person who says that they are in proper fellowship with God, who, who is light, but they are openly disobeying God, they're walking in darkness, well, that person, according to John, that person's a liar. Now, ten times, ten times John uses the word darkness to describe our sin. Now, rather than reading through all ten of these, let me just give them to you quickly. John chapter 1, verse number 5. John chapter 3, verse number 19. And then in John chapter 12, verse number 35, he uses the word darkness two times to describe sin. You get into 1 John. You see in 1 John chapter 1, he uses the word darkness to describe sin in verse number 5, as well as in verse number 6. When we get to chapter 2, we'll see him use it in verse number 8 and verse number 9. And then when you get to verse number 11, he'll use the word darkness two times. So there's 10 times that, that John uses the word darkness to refer to sin. So, so let me be very clear that we cannot live a sinful life and simultaneously, truthfully claim to, to be in full, proper fellowship with God. Again, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. Now, here's the error that John is trying to address. He's trying to address the error, this belief, that, that one could be a Christian, that one could be a believer, and still continue in their darkness. That just believing in Christ doesn't necessarily have to affect how we live and, and what we do. That's the error that John is trying to address. See, the, the heretics believed that fellowship with God was based only upon knowledge. And so this was an aspect of, of, of Greek philosophy that could be traced back to Plato. But, but here, John is asserting that uh, as a believer, yes, they must have knowledge of God, but they must also live and pursue Christ's likeness in their lives. And so when we talk about the gospel, 
or when we talk about proper fellowship with God, may you understand that there are three aspects of the gospel that needs to be understood. Let me put it this way. The gospel is talking about a person to be welcomed. Then it's also truths about that person to be believed. And then a life like that person to be lived. So, so the gospel, again, the gospel is a person to be welcomed. We're talking about Jesus, right? Jesus to be welcomed. It's truths about Jesus to be believed. And then a life like Jesus to be lived. And so John isn't the only person that is attempting to address this issue. The Apostle Paul also addresses it. I want you to listen to his writing in Galatians. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you, as I warned you before you, do not do such things. Or, or though, I'm sorry, let me say that again. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the key to understanding what Paul just said is found in the phrase, those who do such things. Now the Greek word that's used there indicates an ongoing habitual lifestyle. It is talking about someone who practices those sins, who fully embraces those sins, who life is characterized by the pursuit of those sins. There is no such thing as a believer who lives a habitual lifestyle of sin. Uh, there are people who are deceived into thinking that they're believers, but that's not the truth. Because, again, the Word of God says, if we say that we have fellowship with Him, and yet we walk in darkness, then we lie, and we do not practice the truth. Oh, listen to what Paul had to say to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, uh, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. That's what he says in verse number 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul is writing and he's addressing the fact that some of these Corinthians had lived lives that were filled with the very dark things and the dark deeds that he had mentioned in verses 9 and 10. In fact, it was a, a habitual, ongoing lifestyle for them. But when they came to, to faith in Jesus Christ, all of that changed. That's why he uses the phrase, and such were some of you. It all changed because Jesus brought transformation into their lives. 
Because now they were washed, they were sanctified, they were being sanctified, and they were justified in the name of our Lord. Then they came into the light, and when they were exposed to the light, then their deeds of darkness were exposed unto them. And when they saw their deeds of darkness, which the light revealed, then they humbled themselves and repented. And when they humbled themselves and repented, then they received God's mercy. In fact, they experienced His grace and His forgiveness. Then they had been filled with the Spirit of God. And by His power and through His strength and by the Spirit of God, they were now living changed lives. They no longer lived like they used to. They no longer pursued the, the sinful acts that they once were embraced or entangled in because there was a transformation. Scripture teaches us that, yes, God loves us while we're still sinners, but it also teaches us that Jesus didn't die for us so that we can just remain in our sin. No, he died so that the captives might be set free. Second Peter, I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning of verse number 21 says, For we have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And then 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 24 says, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. It says that he bore our sin in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin, that, that we might live to righteousness. What, it needs, what needs to happen in our lives is for us to confess and to believe in him so that we can die to sin and then live to righteousness. But we have a, a westernized understanding of what it means to believe. We think belief is merely an intellectual agreement with something or someone. But the Bible wasn't written from a westernized culture or a westernized understanding the Bible was written in the Eastern culture. And with an Eastern culture, they had an understanding that believing something is completely different than what our Western understanding is. In the Eastern culture, to believe goes beyond just an intellectual acceptance of something, but it goes further than that because it takes the intellectual acceptance and then it takes that knowledge and it puts that belief into practice in our everyday lives. 
That's why James writes in James chapter 1, verse number 22, do not be, or do not just listen to the word and deceive yourselves, but do what it says. Take that knowledge and put it into practice. Live it out. So, so I say all that because I need you to hear me on this very next point. And I'll say it just as, as tenderly, but as firmly as I can. You need to understand that God will not bless your sin. He won't do that. If you want to experience the true blessing of God, then you need to walk in the light. You can't wander off into the realm of darkness. You can't wander off and, and do the things that seem right in your eyes. Or do the things that feel right in your, in, in your own life. You, you can't just wander off into the darkness and then do the things that culture dictates is acceptable. Knowing all along that those things, those actions, or, or those thoughts, or those ideals are contrary to the Word of God. And then... Expect God to bless you in your pursuit of the things that you know that are contrary to his word. And God's blessing doesn't work that way. That's why many Christians are, are accurately described as hypocrites. And we, we not only expect God to, to bless our sin, but sometimes we even have the audacity knowing that our lifestyle is contrary to his word. Sometimes we even have the audacity to ask and demand at times God's blessing in the midst of a lifestyle that's contrary to the will of God and to his word. May you know, God's blessings don't work that way. God won't do that. God can't do that. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And if he were to bless you in your sin, if he were to bless your relationship that you have with the person to whom you're living with and sleeping with and to whom you're not married to, if he were to bless that relationship, then he would be encouraging more sin in your life. And that wouldn't be in keeping with who God is. Let's move on to verse number 7. Verse 7 says that if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from sin. Now there are two major questions that come to my mind in this verse. And that is, what does it mean to walk in the light? And then also, what does it mean to be cleansed from all sin? So let's start with the first one. What does it mean to walk in the light? Well, to walk in the light is describing an ongoing habitual lifestyle in which we seek to pursue Jesus Christ. Just as walking in darkness is describing an ongoing habitual pursuit of sin, walking in light is describing an ongoing habitual pursuit of Christ. That means that that we are seeking and striving to live under Christ, under his authority, under his teaching, under his love, and under his grace. Walking in the light 
means that we have our values and the priorities of our lives are centered upon the will of God and the Word of God. And so when we walk in the light, we live in the truth, we live in knowledge, and we live in righteousness. And as a result of walking in the light, two things are going to happen. And the verse tells us these two things. First of all, we're going to have fellowship with one another. Fellowship with one another. But what is that actually saying? What does that mean? To whom is it referring to? There are two different schools of thought of, of, of understanding what this fellowship is talking about. Some commentators teach that this fellowship is talking about the fellowship between other believers. So if that is true, then the sense would be that if we walk in truth, knowledge, and righteousness, if we're walking in the light, then we will have fellowship with other Christians who, who are doing the same. Now, on the other hand, there's another group of commentators that, that reject that interpretation of fellowship, and they reject the interpretation of fellowship based upon grammatical reasons. The Greek pronoun that's used here for one another would normally refer to the two parties that were named in the first part of this statement. So, so go back and look at verse number 7. The first part of the statement says, but if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light. So the first part is, we walk in the light. So the first part is talking about those who believe. The second part is talking about God himself. So the two parties that are named in the first part of the statement would be God and the believer. Now, if this is true, then the sense would be, if we walk in in the light, or if we walk in truth, knowledge, and righteousness, then we have fellowship with God who is light and in whom there is no darkness. Now, keep that in mind. Is the fellowship talking about other believers, or is the fellowship talking about God himself? Keep that in mind when we look at the second thing that happens when we walk in the light. Because it says that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, I personally, and let me just be clear, this is just my, my personal opinion. Uh, I personally think that this strengthens the interpretation that the fellowship that's being mentioned is the fellowship between God and the believer. To me, it seems less connected to suggest that when we walk in the light, that we have fellowship with other Christians and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sins. Both of those statements are true, but, but I just think they're less connected. To me, it seems more natural to suggest that when we walk in the light, then we have fellowship with God who cleanses us from our sins. Now, it's certainly true that if we're walking in the light, then, then we would have fellowship with other Christians who are also walking in the light. So either way that you interpret that word fellowship is not going to have any type of doctrinal issues. Doctrinal truth is not going to be lost if you believe the fellowship is talking about the believer and other believers or between the believer and God himself. 
And then, so then the second part of the question, the second question would be, what does it mean to be cleansed from all sin? Well, the verb cleansed is actually in the present tense, which is suggesting a continuous and a progressive action. This means that the blood of Jesus continually cleanses us from our sin. If we walk in fellowship with Jesus, then, then we are constantly confessing our sins, and, and the blood of Jesus is always cleansing us from those sins. So this phrase helps to remind us that true fellowship between God and man can only be found in and through Jesus Christ. This phrase also helps to serve as a transition into this, ve- this very next section. In this next section, John is going to refute two significant misconceptions. The first misconception is found in verses 8 and 9, and that is that man is not totally sinful or depraved. The second misconception is found in verse number 10, as well as in into chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. There the misconception is that a person can become righteous or sinless on their own. So let's deal with the first misconception. Verse number 8. It says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So let's just be honest real quick. How many of you would, would be truthful enough to, to, to admit by raising your hand that you have sinned this past week? Raise your hand. Now, look around. If they're not raising their hand in your home right here and right now, then they've sinned. They're lying because there's not a perfect one among us. We, we all struggle. That We're all tempted, and sometimes we choose the wrong response in those temptations, and we give in to that sin. Not one of us is, is, is perfect and so may we understand that there are two types of sin in this world, and often we narrowly focus on, on the sins that we commit. And so we sin when we do things that we're not supposed to do, and those are called sins of commission. But, but we often fail to realize or even talk about the sin of omission. The sin of omission is when we fail to do the very things that we're called to do. And so that's sin as well. And so truthfully, there's not one of us who loves other people perfectly all the time. There's not one of us that can truly say that I love all people at all time perfectly with the love of Jesus. And for that as our example, then then we can acknowledge that, that we still sin because we fail to love others, all people, perfectly with the love of Jesus. Now, if we think that we're without sin altogether, then we're deceived and we're living a lie. Verse number 9 says, if we confess our sins, then he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, now this verse can be confusing if we're not careful. So let me take a little bit of time to unpack what's happening here. The forgiveness 
that John is talking about here could be understood as being a relational forgiveness or a parental forgiveness. That, that's, that's not the same thing as a judicial forgiveness or sometimes it's referred to as positional forgiveness. And so we receive judicial or positional forgiveness one time in life. One time, and one time alone. And that's at the moment that we repent of our sins and we confess Jesus Christ as Lord. At that time, we are saved from the penalty of our sin. We have received judicial forgiveness Scripture tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us with all wisdom and insight. So, so it's called judicial forgiveness because it's given to us by God as he acts as judge. Now, after salvation, the reality is we still sin. Now that sin does not cause us to lose our salvation. Again, sin after salvation does not call us or cause us to lose our salvation. If you want to read about that, you can read in Romans chapter 8, verses 37 through 39. So while sin does not cause us to lose our salvation, sin does damage the fellowship that we have with God. Just as uh, the sin of a, of a child damages the fellowship that they have with their parents. In other words, if, if a son were to do something wrong against his father, well then uh, the son is still the son of the father. That relationship is still intact, but the fellowship between the father and son has been damaged. So the relationship is intact. He's still the son of the father, but the fellowship is damaged. And so that fellowship will be hindered until the son comes to his senses, confesses his sin, seeking forgiveness. It's the same way with us and God. When we sin, we still belong to him. That relationship is still in place, but we've damaged the fellowship that we have with him. So when we confess our sins, seeking his forgiveness, then the fellowship gets restored. And so we confess our sins out of respect and out of love, to the person to whom we have sinned against. And God forgives our sin, and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness, thus restoring us to a proper fellowship with him. So, so we need judicial forgiveness only one time, but we need relational or parental forgiveness whenever we sin. Some of you, my friends, I think you're confused in thinking that you feel so distant and disconnected uh, with God, and you fear that you don't belong to Him 
But the reality is, if you are truly a believer and you truly confessed your sin and called out to him and received him as Lord and Savior in your life, then the reason you feel so disconnected and separated from him isn't necessarily because the relationship has been destroyed. No, it's because the fellowship is damaged and it's damaged because of sin in your life. Confess your sin. Repent so that you can receive the forgiveness, so that you can receive a restored fellowship with the Father. Look at verse number 10. Because verse number 10 needs to be read in direct connection to verse number 9. Okay, so, because I said that, maybe I should start with verse number 9. Verse number 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. When we are confronted with the word of God about sin in our lives, then we should admit them rather than to continue to deny them. To deny our personal sin in the face of God's testimony to its contrary is to make God out to be a liar. When, when the Holy Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God reveal and convict us of our sin, instead of denying or rejecting that conviction, we need to agree with God and align ourselves with His Word. And we need to confess our sin so that we can receive the restoration of the fellowship that He's promised to us in verse number 9. Now, now most scholars would agree that uh, the thought didn't stop here in verse number 10. Most scholars would agree that the first two verses of chapter 2 or actually conclude the discussion of, of what's happening here in chapter 1. Because John, John doesn't t- change subjects until he gets to verse number 3. So with that in mind, let's, let's push forward just a little bit more. Let's get into verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. There John writes, and he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. The Apostle John says in chapter 1, verse number 9, that if we confess our sins, that we will be forgiven. But may you know that you have no reason to be burdened with guilt because of your inability to completely eradicate sin from your life. You also need to understand that just because Jesus is willing to forgive us of our sin, that doesn't mean that we are free to just keep on sinning. The scripture is written to us so that we won't sin. If I were to paraphrase what's happening here, it would be like, do your best not to sin, but if you do or when you do, may you know that you've got some help. He says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus 
is our advocate. That is a legal term. It's a legal term. It's like Jesus is our defense attorney. Jesus is our defense attorney who defends us at the throne of God. Yeah, Satan may stand there as accuser, but Jesus Christ is there as our advocate. And he's there to plead on our behalf. And that is awesome news. The work of Christ is not done. He is interceding on behalf of those whom belong to him. Look at the last phrase of verse number two. He says, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Here, John is reminding us that the atoning sacrifice of Christ at the cross is sufficient. Keyword, sufficient. The atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ is sufficient for every person in this world. Listen carefully. While Jesus' death is sufficient for every sin of every person who has ever lived or who will ever live. Although his sin is sufficient for all of it, it becomes effectual only for those who repent of their sin, who accept the sacrifice of the Savior and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. The simple fact is that while his death dealt fully with sin, the sin nature within us is not completely destroyed or removed. Those ingrained desires, let's be honest, they still tug at us. We still are prone to experience moments of of pride, lust, anger, jealousy, bitterness, hatred, fear. See, the capacity to sin remains. Not only does it remain, it'll be an ever-present burden in our lives, at least until we received our glorified bodies. You need to understand, the capacity to sin and even the temptation to sin, that is not really the issue for the Christian life. The issue is not our capacity to sin or the temptation to sin. No, what is that issue are our choices. Choices is at stake. While we might feel old passion stirring within us, may we also appreciate the godliness in the pursuit of godliness, we also have this desire within us to be, become like Jesus Christ our Lord. We want to walk in his love, walk in his grace, demonstrate those characteristics in our lives. And so we have these two natures that are at war within us. One seeks to wander off into the darkness, while the other seeks to walk in the light. And so, praise be to God that we have a choice, a choice to be made. Because we can either choose to continue to walk in the light, living under Christ, under his authority, under his teaching, under his love, under his grace, or we can choose to wander off into the darkness. 
And so it's the choice we make, my friends. It's the choice we make, not the temptations that we experience. That is what moves us off into darkness or will keep us in the light. We cannot live in proper fellowship with God if we're living a lie. So to walk in the light means that we must face and we must be willing to deal with the sin that's in our life. And that's ultimately the invitation that I extend to us all today, wherever you're at. Are you willing to deal with your sin? Are you willing to humble yourself before the Almighty God so that you might deal with sin? I'd like to take a moment, if I could, to share with you a reading uh, from a book called Humility. Humility was written by a man by the name of Andrew Murray. During this stay-at-home, stay-safe order uh, that we're under, uh, the family and I, uh, we selected a book that we would uh, read through uh, chapters at a time and have a discussion about this book just together. So in the evenings, uh, Casey and I, along with Rose and Tyler and Logan, we would sit around and we would reflect upon uh, the writings of Andrew Murray that's in the book called Humility. Uh, And one of the things that profoundly stood out to me was actually found at the very end of the book. And there's a, a section at the end of the book that's called A Prayer for Humility. And so the prayer for humility, in this section, he writes and he says... Until the spirit of the heart is renewed, until it is emptied of all earthly desires and stands in habitual hunger and thirst after God, which is the true spirit of prayer, until then, all of our prayers will be more or less like lessons given to students. We will mostly say them only because we dare not neglect them. But be not discouraged. Take the following advice. And then you may go to church without any danger of mere lip service or hypocrisy. Although there may be a hymn or a prayer whose language is higher than that of your heart, go to the church as the tax collector went to the temple. Stand inwardly in the spirit of your mind in that form that he outwardly expressed when he cast down his eyes and can only say, God Be merciful to me, a sinner. Stand unchangeably, at least in your desire, in this form or state of heart. It will sanctify every petition that comes out of your mouth. And when anything is read or sung or prayed that is more exalted than your heart is, if you make this an occasion for further identifying with the spirit of the tax collector, you will then be helped and highly blessed by those prayers and praises that seem to belong to a heart that is better than yours. I wanted to share that with you as a call and as a challenge and as an encouragement for you to to humbly receive the word of God into your heart and life today. Are you willing to deal with the sin that's in your life? 
You ask me how, what do I need to do, what's the solution? I'm going to make it real simple for you today. Two steps, two things. Oh, that we would all do these two things today. First and foremost, you need to stop pursuing sin. Stop pursuing it. Stop chasing after it. Stop running to it. Stop embracing it. Stop the pursuit of the sin. Number two, you need to confess that sin unto God. Instead of pretending like it doesn't exist, instead of trying to minimize it like it's no big deal, instead of trying to hide your little secret, you need to acknowledge that sin before God. Confess this sin, seeking his forgiveness, so that you can receive God's forgiving grace and, and so that every barrier that is hindering your, your fellowship with God can be removed so that you can have a proper, full fellowship with God. Oh, that we would all do these things. Are you willing to allow the Holy Spirit and the Holy Word of God to make known unto you the sinful things that you're doing? and the things that you have been neglecting to do, but ought to do, are you willing to acknowledge that as a sinful choice of neglect? Will you confess it, repent from it, and receive the forgiveness that God longs to offer so that your fellowship with him might be restored? My friends, I can think of no better place or no better time for us to deal with our sin than right here right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Father, I pray now that your spirit and your word may bring conviction into the hearts and lives of all of us. There's not a single perfect one among us, myself included. May your spirit And may your word identify the sinful choices that we are making in our lives. May you give us the courage, the strength, the willingness to repent from those sins, to confess those sins, so that we might have a proper, restored relationship with you, so that your love and your grace and your mercy may be on full display in and through our lives. God, we know that we have a lot of work that needs to be done. And God, may it start right here and right now. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. And as we go, let's end with this. May God bless you. May God go before you to lead you, behind you to protect you, beneath you to sustain you, and beside you to befriend you. Do not be afraid. God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit will always be with you, so don't be afraid. Go, glorify God, and seek to make his glory known. Amen. I will see you next time, church.